Welcome to Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan, a podcast about the art and hobby of miniature painting. I'm Mike, and thank you so much for joining us on our continued journey to become better, braver, and happier painters. Today we kind of continue our uh, international art party, so to speak. Uh, Two weeks ago we had a conversation with Banshee in Spain. This week we're proud to present a conversation that I had with David Soper, an award-winning artist from the United Kingdom. He's a multi-time Slayer Sword winner. And just all around nice guy, really enjoyed the conversation, learned quite a bit from what he had to share about his painting journey. You can check him out on Sprocket Small World, his blog, we'll put links to it in the show notes. The nice thing as well is that he shares his knowledge there and drops some tutorials on everything from weathering to non-metallic metals. He actually has some fantastic recipes that makes life a lot easier if you're studying non-metallic metals, so check it out. So without further ado, I present David Soper. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Um, Thank you so, for having me. So uh, we got, initially, before I didn't hit record, um, I started asking you about um, how things were going with the painting and COVID. So I apologize for making you repeat yourself. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, okay. Um, slightly disrupted. I've, I've, I found it, it's, it's been a difficult couple of years for various reasons. So um, it was one more thing on top of everything else but um yeah it's you know painting has been one of my comforts in lockdown um it's it's ticking along rather than sort of racing i, I had assumed oh yeah i'm going to get loads and loads of time to paint there's there have been a lot of other things going on but um yeah it, i've sort of kept it uh, going along and um yeah it's kept me going as well oh fantastic i had that sa- the same mentality that student years i was going to paint a bazillion models i think i've done two um <laughs> You know, just life rolls over. Yeah, I, I think a lot of a lot. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people made that assumption. A lot of people have done a lot of painting. I mean, you, you see it online. It's sort of um, slightly terrifying the the amount of work some people are doing. So, talk to me. Tell me how you got into this hobby. Right. Well, it, it, it's a story that goes back a long way, um, all the way to to around about 1980 when I was I was 14. Um, and it's, it was the big Dungeons and Dragons craze that was going around in the UK at that time. Uh, and all my mates were playing um, in their lunch breaks. I sort of joined in naturally enough. We were, a lot of us were into sort of various, you know, fancy things, Lord of the Rings. We just had the, um, the animated cartoon that sort of come around and we were, a lot of us were reading it at school. Um, and so we were sort of gaming away. And then one day, one of my mates came in from a trip to London. He came back after that and he had these models with him these miniatures which I'd, I'd heard about you know the, the miniatures to game with um and i was just totally captured by them i just saw these little figurines and something just i just made this connection i i, I was um already artistic um i, I already knew that was the sort of the, the kind of thing i was going to pursue career-wise um you know arts and design was something i was very interested in art was my best subject at school uh, and so the idea of painting these little models just totally clicked with me. Um, and I started doing that and very quickly that completely took over from the gaming side of things. It, I, I was definitely a painter rather than a gamer. Uh, and I just, I just fell in love with it. This, this was the perfect hobby for me. Um, you know, the, the whole um, the love of fine detail, the, the attention to detail was something that some um, I always struggled with actually in a lot of my painting and drawing. It, it, they were far too detailed and finicky. Um, it was a habit that I needed to get out of. And what, what I actually found was I could pour 
all of those instincts into my miniature painting where it was completely appropriate. Um, and then that actually freed up my painting and drawing so that I could explore slightly looser and, and bolder techniques, which was a, a healthier thing to do in that area. Um, but really from that point onwards, I, I, I just loved, you know, I, I could happily sit up in my room and, and sort of paint miniatures in splendid isolation. Um, and, sort of, and sort of did so for, um, you know, quite a few years. And I, I was sort of the painter of the group at school. Then a lot of us went on to Sixth Form College where we ran a little painting club. After a year, I, I went, uh, left the Sixth Form and went on to art college where I was studying graphic design. I'd, I was definitely sort of pursuing that art, artistic side of things, um, you know, and was focused on a, on a creative career. But the painting was always there. And I, I found that my miniature painting and my formal art education very much progressed together but the two things and even career-wise later on a lot of my design sensibility a lot of my color sense um i've developed this with the painting and the graphic design it's, it's all grown up together so the, the painting's been with me for a very very long time that's that's awesome i love hearing those stories about how people can kind of yeah, that artistic side of you and miniatures kind of gave you an outlet that allowed you to explore other things too. So that's that's it, very cool. Yeah, um, yeah it, it freed me up. So now, then, kind of along that line of being freed up, what did you find when you decided that you wanted to kind of go to that next level of miniature painting? What what areas did you kind of struggle in? I know a lot of my listeners um, always kind of feel alone on an island um, when they're struggling with painting, but I try to tell them that everybody goes through stuff you know <laughs> with their, with their oh, skills yeah at, at whatever level you're at um however long you've been doing it there are always going to be struggles um i think while i was developing that the the big thing it wasn't so much specific techniques um I, I i i tended to just sort of explore naturally anyway but i think it i would say it's actually the basics it's something like brush control getting the level of brush control i needed to get the results i wanted has always been and continues to be a struggle. It's the thing I have to work at. You can never take it for granted. Um, because as, as I've gained more brush control, more precision, um, more accuracy, then I've, I've wanted still more from what I'm trying to do. And I think that was really the, the big thing in learning to paint. Um, I, I think sort of getting that, that coordination, it, it's, I think painting is a, a habit of, um, of coordinating the hands, the eyes, and the brain. Um, it's actually what's happening on the model is almost a byproduct of that coordination working successfully. And it, and it was developing those instincts and those habits that, that sort of helped me to do that. That's interesting. It's kind of like uh, developing muscle memory almost, it seems like. Totally, that, totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I found, obviously I, I sort of did this, and I, I, I sort of, you know, as, as a, a solo, teenage painter sort of developed these things and explored it and, and I had a feeling that I thought I was good but then I think we all do um, and then along came Golden Demon and it was a well, okay now I'm going to find out am I as good as I like to think I am um, you know the idea of actually competing was something that came along and, and the first Golden Demon came along um, and I did pretty well we had we had um, regional heats back in those days in, in various gaming shops around the country. Um, I didn't get beyond the regional heat, but I sort of, it sort of spurned me on to sort of think, you know what, there's a challenge here. There's something to aim for now. Um, that, that sort of gave me more focus to my painting. 
Uh, so then for the next year, um, I sort of tried again, got through to the finals, um, won my first trophies. And, and that sort of um, kind of got me to really take my painting more seriously. I thought, you know what, I am, I am good. I'm good enough to win things, but you know, I, it's, you can always be better. Anyone, we can all always be better. There's always that feeling that, yeah, that could be better every time. Um, and that's, that's really been with me since then. Um, and I, you know, I, I sort of then had that, that sort of struggle, that, that, that target of, okay, I've done well, I've won a gold next year. I want to, you know, I want to equal that. I want to keep that standard up. Um, and then there was that Slayer Sword hanging before everybody as the ultimate goal, which I managed to achieve shockingly early, really, in, in 1990. Didn't expect to reach that level so soon. Um, and then kind of reached a stage of almost like, well, okay, I've done that. Now I'm just going to paint for myself. And that's my, my wilderness years when I sort of disappeared uh, from viewing the hobby and just carried on painting for myself for a long time. But eventually, you know, life, life came along. Um, other things happened. I sort of stopped painting. Um, and then if we come forward to uh, the early, that won't be that, around 2010, I think, started painting again, got drawn back into the hobby. And I had a whole new set of challenges because you talked about muscle memory and I'd lost it. Um, I, I, I sort of was seeing all this wonderful stuff online that people were doing and painting and thinking, I, I, wanted, I used to do that, I used to be able to do that. I want to do it again. Um, started trying and, and, and just really, you know, couldn't instantly pick up a brush and paint again, uh, which was so um, disturbing. <laughs> You know that that sort of disappointment in in sort of oh dang it I've I've lost something here I you know I, I could do this and it frustrated me that I couldn't but it gave me a real set of challenges I think that was probably the biggest single you know you asked me about what were the challenges I faced while learning and I, I think that in many ways relearning to paint was a much bigger challenge than my initial learning to paint because I think when I did it initially I had I didn't have the expectations I was just this this sort of kid painting alone exploring developing a set of artistic skills both in his hobby and, and for his professional life um, and yet when I tried to relearn I had this huge challenge of expecting myself to be able to do it and expecting myself to be able to do it to a high standard and having to accept that I was going to have to go back to the basics and sort of relearn the skills re regain that muscle memory and it, it, it took me a few years to do it well, it's amazing too that you, when you took that, that well, probably when you took that break, kind of a revolution in the world of miniature painting happened as well while, while you were gone, right? <laughs> yeah. Like everything. Yeah, I, I turned my back and, and the hobby evolved beyond. I mean, and that was very much the thing that drew me back into it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, in, in the, you know, back in the old school days, I, I'd attained, I'd, I'd really attained a certain standard. And I think I'd plateaued in, in the sort of the, the mid 1990s, I, I and my style was totally of that era, um, and I'd kind of perfected a style of smooth, bright, crisp painting, um, and then my style had sort of frozen at that point because I was no longer painting enough to develop. I, I was maybe doing one miniature a year, um, you know, for quite a few years. Just every now and again, I'd get something done, um, and then just stop for. A few years so when, when I came back I, I actually had the double challenge if I had to get back up to speed almost sort of get back to where I was when I stopped painting but then then there was the, the really sexy challenge 
of getting my hobby up to date and, and becoming sort of a part of and relevant to the, to the modern hobby because it was just it was so stimulating to see uh, just how much more sophisticated miniature painting had become. Yeah, it's it's really it's impressive. Like, let me ask you this: when you when you came back, have there been since you've been back, have there been other artists that have inspired you? Oh, completely. Um, I mean, Ben Ben Comets has, has been a big inspiration to me. Certainly in those early days when I when I was um, you know, seeing what painters were doing and and trying to find out, well, how had they done it? Why had they done it? What's the thinking behind this approach? Um, the, the ben was a massive influence. He was he was doing a lot of sharing of things online as well, which was so useful to me. Um, Roman Lapas as well, just just showing me that kind of. Um, a much more fine art sensibility and influence in, on miniature painting. Um, back when I learned to paint, it was a very insular sort of hobby. It was very much its own thing within its own little bubble. Um, it had a lot of influences maybe from sort of 1970s fantasy art. Um, artists like Rodney Matthews, for instance. There was a quite a whimsical feel to it. Um, <laughs> and in the years that passed, it, it's there are a lot more real world influences. Um, as I say, fine art, of other types of, you know, historical painting, the, those boundaries have, have blurred tremendously, which I think is all for the better. You know, between fantasy and historical, that, the idea of realism. I, I think even things like the, um, the Lord of the Rings films that sort of came in and suddenly people were painting miniatures, fantasy miniatures of something to which there was a real world reference. Because, you know, prior to that, it's kind of, it's fantasy. It's who's to say I'm painting my space elf in the wrong colours because you show me a real space elf and then I'll agree with you, I've painted it in the wrong colours. But until you do, I'll paint it in whatever colours I think it should be. And then you suddenly had this whole sort of um, way of painting that had some kind of reference. And that whole kind of grim, dark, um, you know, that spilled over from the 40K into the fantasy to some degree. Um, a little bit too much, I, I think, in, in, in some respects. But I, when, I, when I came back to the hobby and first started sort of painting and showing my work online, I sort of, I, I, I thought, you know, I want to be a part of this hobby again. And I think, well, actually now it's the internet, um, which, you know, just wasn't there at all when, when I, you know, was painting previously. Mm -hmm. um, I suddenly came back to this hobby and... Yeah, the, the internet was a huge revolution. You know, I remember I, I'm a 25-year gapper. Uh, I played in high school, then I took a 25-year break. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it wasn't even the same planet. No, it, it's, it's a different community. You know, I learned to paint. Um, I, I, I love the fact that with the internet, there's now a community of painters um, all around the world that, that, you know, we can share ideas, share our work, um, critique one another's work. Um, particularly when I came back into the hobby, it was it was on the cool mini forums, um, and that was such a help to me, such a support to me, um, to just kind of you know you, even you know even even when you've got all these years of experience, you know I've I've been painting for forty years now, but that doesn't mean I I can sometimes I'll paint something and I'll miss the completely obvious thing, um, you know you, we we get so close to our work very often when we paint that we can you know, you need those fresh eyes when other people, regardless of how experienced they, they may or may not be, they'll sometimes look at your model and say, yeah, did you mean to do that? Is What about doing this? Um, and, and that was just brilliant. That was so useful to me. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it too, being able to get that, that, that feedback from anywhere in the world. It's, 
I don't know. That, no. it, it kind of freaks me out sometimes. I'm like, wait, somebody in Germany just. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, so, I, I, one of the things I'm always curious about is um, how artists kind of approach a project. And so, if I were to hand you uh, a model, kind of, what is your thought process when you go into starting something new? Right. The, the first thing I always do with a model is, is, is I'm going to look at that model and I'm going to, who is this? What, what are they? Where are they? I, I want to just get my head around um, the identity, the character that I'm painting, the backstory, if there is one. Um, you know, where, where are they? What are they doing? What's their environment? What are their reasons? Um, and, and really think it through. And, and, and sometimes that's something, you know, that can come very quickly. Um, when I painted Gut Ross and I knew who he was and what I wanted to do with him. Um, other models I've had to sort of sit down and think it through a little. Um, and, and really just so that in my mind I know who I'm painting, what I'm painting. Um, I then, maybe then I'll start looking at some of the more technical um, ideas, you know, what colour palette are we using, which should probably have been informed by, you know, is this a good character, an evil character? Is it a magical character? All those considerations that I've already made will then begin to sort of feed into the sort of the color choices, you know, what kind of approach, what texture, is it a dark light? Um, just thinking about those technical things. And, and then I'm, I may um, sort of have a, an even more technical approach. It may, it may be that if it's a model for a workshop, there's something I particularly want to demonstrate on that model. So I'll need to incorporate that into it. Um, or it may be that there's a particular color I just fancy sort of um, experimenting with it at that moment. I mean, you know, I, I've had models where I said, you know, on this model, I want, I want to um, use black. I want to work with black again or yellow. They're, they're actually two colors that in recent years I've, I've made a particular point of incorporating into a color scheme for, for more technical reasons, for sort of re you know, reasons of I want to sort of, um, you know, experiment with this, but it, it all has to work together with, with that story, with that background. That's, yeah, I was going to actually, one of the other questions I was going to ask was about, uh, do you ever kind of get stuck on a color and maybe go, oh, I've done five projects. Damn, that's a lot of green. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say stuck. I, I have my, you know, I have my sort of my yellow period or my green period, um, which is usually a, a, a definite decision to do that. I mean, I mean, literally, the, the yellow I was talking about, I, I did some, I think I did a pox walker where I, I had these sort of yellow industrial um, sort of trousers on him um, because yellow was a color I, I suddenly realized I just hadn't used it in any way for years. And I thought, well, what's that about? Um, let's give it a go. Um, um, and then, then I did the Sloppity Bullpiper, um, where, you know, it, it's going to be a bright sort of nergly, chaosy yellow. So I, I like to play with a specific color um, and see how, you know, how I can push it in different directions. Um, and I like to explore a color and, you know, how does it react in different situations against other colors? And I'll, I'll have definite periods and errors where I do that. Um, getting stuck on a color, I, I do have favorite colors. So I, I catch myself using maybe a little too much. I, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I, think it, I actually think it's really good. You know, as an artist, I think you need to understand the pigments you're working with, um, how they behave in different situations, you know, on different types of model in, in with different color combinations. If you take this color and mix it with that color, 
or that color, how will it behave? Um, and I think as a painter, I think that's part of my skill set that I need to sort of have that understanding. You know, there, there are certain colors I have that are definite favorites, but every now and again, I think it's really important to just shake it up and forbid myself to use certain colors on certain projects. So, you know what, I'm not doing that this time. Um, when I, when I did gut rot spume, I, I used a completely fresh palette. I'd actually shifted to a, a new um, a new range of paints. I'd, I'd started using the scale color paints for the first time. And I said, you know, I really need to focus on this. And I really need to, to um, experiment. So I'm gonna use entirely scale color paints. So none of these colors were familiar. And I mean, the result, it, it, it took me out of my comfort zone. It forced me to, explore and I mean it, it was one of the most complicated color palettes I've ever worked with because I was sort of introducing colors and trying them in certain combinations and some would work some wouldn't some I'd use I think that's nice but I need a bit of this I need a bit of that um then other times I, I may have a, a model where I, I think you know what I'm going to use the old favorites because I I know exactly what they're going to do I, I think the best is a combination of both worlds I think have your old favorites, have the colors that you know exactly how to use them, how they're going to behave, but throw a couple of new colors and in into the mix. So you gradually expand your repertoire, your, your understanding of how these colors are going to behave. Because obviously, you know, when we're working with paint, we're, we're using pigment and, and, and pigments can behave quite strangely when you intermix them. It, it's different to just pure color theory of, you know, the relationships between the various colors. Um, you know, when you actually sort of bring pigment into it as an issue, you, you can discover um, an, an example I'll, I often use actually is the old colours Scorched Brown, which I, I love deeply. Um, it looks like a fairly ordinary dark brown, but there's actually a lot of red in it. You don't necessarily see that red. If you just paint a square of Scorched Brown onto a piece of paper, you won't necessarily realise how much red is in that colour until you start to use it and mix it with other colours. And um, this is something I, I, I found on my, um, my Dark Elder diorama from um, uh, 2013. Um, I was mixing Scorch Brown with um, some pale blues and I was getting purpley tones out of it, which is how I came to realize just how much red was hidden in there. And that, that's lovely because you can, you can really start to play with the pigments you're using and, and sort of get some quite interesting results out of them. Right. It, 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 now, let me add this kind of follow up with that, because you had mentioned Ben Cummins as being one of your influences. Um, the two paints that you always see in Ben Cummins, <laughs> dark, dark Sea Blue and Tank Brown. Um, yeah. Do we, are, are, is there anything that's in your repertoire that you kind of, besides Scorch Brown per se, is there another color or anything that kind of seems to always make its way onto your palette? Oh, but there certainly are. Um, there's a skill color um, called black leather, mm -hmm. um, which I love. It, it, it's, a, it's a strange color. It's, it's a very dark, desaturated brown, but there's something. There's almost something purple about it. Yeah. And and how you? I don't know how you can have a purpley brown, but there is. But it's it's, it's one of. I, I think these colors I like are that they're almost for sort of the more desaturated colors that are often in that slightly muddier area. But you you've what I find with that color is you can mix it with almost any other color to darken it. And it won't, um, it won't mess it up too much. I mean, even, even yellow to a degree, I mean, yellow's a notoriously tricky one, but I find that I can use this black leather to shade most other colors successfully. Be they warm or cool, um, which is wonderful. I mean, I mean, dark sea blue is a little like that. Obviously it's, 
it's got those blue green pigments in it which which can be quite overpowering you have to be a little more careful with that one um another another one i use an awful lot of is um flayed one flesh which i, I tend to use as a highlight color mm -hmm. um for similar reasons it, it, it's um it doesn't overwhelm a color scheme it's not pure white i don't I, I don't like to use pure white as a highlight color anymore um i always like to sort of keep that for, for the extreme highlights I, I, what i find is that you paint a model and you use a color like flayed one flesh which is actually quite a, a yellowy off you know it's not even off white it, it's definitely a cream tone um and really when you see the model you don't you don't miss the white you don't realize it's not there but then you've got that further step that little pop of contrast that you can always add those little little white sort of pings in the highlights um i, I think this is actually it's probably this in many ways is, is how ben has been a particular influence to me when i came back to the hobby this this idea of what what I refer to as, as global highlight and shade colours, which, which is this idea of having a highlight colour, which is in all your mixes for all your colours, be that a tiny amount or a huge amount. Um, and, and the same that all my shadow colours would have the same, for example, the, the dark sea blue or the black leather, all my shadows would have that in there to some degree in the mix, uh, which really ties together a colour scheme in a, in a wonderful way. That was, I think, the single biggest revelation I had when I came back to painting, because prior to that, um, if I painted a red area, I would shade it with a dark red. You know, I would highlight it um, probably with white, to be honest, in those days, I highlighted everything with white, but maybe greens, for example, you know, I, I would go from a bright light green through to a dark green. And, and within that green area, all my colors would just be green. There would be no, no other color in the shadows or the highlights, um, which creates a very, um, you know, it's a thing and there's nothing wrong with it. it it's, but it creates quite a comic book sort of look to a model. Um, that very, very high fantasy, not really very realistic. I mean, people often look at my work. It, one of the comments I often get is, is a bit of a comic book feel to my work, which I think, yeah, that's, that's probably actually the graphic designer in me. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's part of my style when I, I used to do illustration and my, my, I never... I didn't illustrate in a super photo realistic. There was always that little bit of um, stylization and, and in my work. And I think that comes through into my painting. But increasingly, I found by having this sort of unifying force um, in, in my color scheme. So that's where my favorite colors tend to actually come into play. Rakar Flesh is another one. Um, I often use that as a base color um, and then often will pull that back into the mix um, of my of my colours, sort of in those midtones towards the highlights. If I'm using Rakoff as the base, um, that will always be in there, and just just to unify it all. That that Rakoff flesh yeah, is very similar to one of my my crutches, deck tan from Vallejo. I used that. Yeah. They're very close in that kind of temperature and color scheme. So, yeah, and that's also awesome. That you know that universal highlight thing is certainly something that is. Um, I've adapted to too. I, I love it. It makes my life a lot easier. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. I, I don't have to worry. Like I don't sit there and have to go triad or do I have to do, you know, cause triads are helpful and it's it, are a good way to learn to paint, but taking it to the next level, you're right. It's kind of, you know, using greens to shade red or, you know, and I, I actually yeah. use that, that yeah. brown leather or that black leather color a lot too. I was really surprised when I first put it on my palette and I'm like, 
there is nothing black about this color. <laughs> well, not in any way whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is a strange color, but it, it's, it's so useful. Absolutely. Now, uh, one of the things that's evolved in your painting is that now you're teaching classes as well. What, what prompted you to want to teach? Initially, I was sort of pressured into it. Um, it, I just had a lot of people asking me, will you do a class, will you do it? And it's, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do that. Um, and eventually I, 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 I sort of yielded. Um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, it, it was, you know, I, I was sort of tempted by the idea of doing it. I thought it could be a good thing to do. A lot of people are asking me to do it. Um, and found I loved it. Um, I, I loved that. I think that interaction was so good just to be able to go and meet up with a group of painters and share what I do um, and, and get as much back from the group as I'm giving to them as well, which is something I hadn't anticipated. I'd always had this vision of, well, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to stand there and teach. And, and it's, it is a two way process. Um, but I think that the best workshops are always the ones when you, you get as much back from the group and people contribute. Um, and I, I just, I just, I enjoyed, um, I found I actually enjoyed preparing a workshop as well. Um, once, once I'd sort of, you know, broken the ice and done my first one, um, I can, you know, there's, there's a lot of thought and planning and preparation that goes into it. Um, I, I think, again, I think that's the graphic designer in me. I, I love the idea of um, thinking a thing through of how are we going to approach this? What's the solution going to be? Here's a problem. Let's come up with a solution. Well, the problem is how am I going to explain how to do what I do? Um, and, and, and actually, in, in many ways, I think the thing I really, it, it's made me analyze what I do because I'd, I'd reached a point in my painting where I was almost work, running on instinct. Um, you know, I, I said, I've had 40 years of sort of painting on and off now. Um, and, and it's almost to the point of you don't consciously think about what you're doing. Um, and then suddenly I have to explain that to a group of people and show them in such a way that they, they hopefully can sort of you know, take some of that on board themselves. And it's really made me analyze my, and, and understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing things. And I, I think the difference now is I, I, I don't necessarily, I still tend to run, you know, when I'm painting, it's a very fluid, very organic process. I'm, I'm not thinking I need to introduce a warmer color here. I'd, you know, I'll just think I want I want a bit of brown. And, and, and I, but when I then step back and look at what I'm doing and why I'm, I can analyze it and understand what, I think, you know, we, we need to, you know, so, um, yeah, painting was some, you know, painting, uh, itching in, um, workshops as, um, really sort of opened out my hobby for me quite a bit. Well, you kind of answered the next question too. I was going to ask you how that impacted your painting. That's fantastic. I, I love hearing how teachers, uh, people who teach get, get, um, so much out of it as well. That's kind of, yeah, no, I, I just, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, it, 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 I really hadn't anticipated how it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a great feeling. It, it's, it's, it's that sharing, which I think is important. Um, I mean, you know, once I'd be sort of, I mean, my first ever workshop when I did it, we sat down, we did the introductions, um, I'd prepared everything, but never done, a, I'd never been to a workshop myself. So I was sort of thinking, oh God, I hope I'm getting this right. Picked up. I thought, well, this isn't going to do, <laughs> get a grip, <laughs> um, get on with it, um, started doing it. But then just that, 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 that sort of, um, 
you know, the appreciation is nice. I mean, I guess there's a bit of an ego trip involved in teaching, but but it it, it was lovely. That just the fact that you know people would make suggestions, we we discuss painting. That's some of the best bits of a workshop, actually. The bits that while every you know I've I've done my bit, um, and people are sort of working away on the model. For, um, I like to get as much practical time in a workshop as possible. I, you know, I I want people painting in my workshops as much as they can. Less of me, you know talking at them um more of them you know painting and then i can go around and we can talk about more and, you know it's great we can talk about you know as a group we can have these wonderful discussions about which benefit from that just as much as the um for me teaching them the specifics of how i stipple a model for example yeah that's incredible i mean the learning from the, not only that you foster kind of a community in that room that's how my co-host and i met was from taking classes you know so that's yeah it's an awesome thing for yeah. sure now i want to get a little specific because you're recently i'm not sure if you finished it yet or not but you're working on one of my favorite games workshop models which is the castellan robots um yep he's oh. done he's finished yeah it's funny i wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you approach that because i know an area that i struggle with is something like weathering it's either too little that why'd I waste my time or holy crap that's way too much on the model and so I was wondering if yeah. you could talk to us a little bit about trying to find balance and such because I your your robot your, your robot's fantastic I, I I love it I actually have a bunch of pictures saved on it to, to look at it for future reference material for me oh excellent thank you um yeah I mean it, it it's that's a really tricky issue. I mean, I, I struggle with it myself. I, I mean, anything like that, actually. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite well known for adding microbeads and slime effects to models. And it's a similar thing to the weathering. And, and it's so easy to go over and do too much. Um, and I often do. Um, even, even highlighting a model. I'll often over-highlight models. It's, it's, it's been something I've always done in my painting. Um, and getting that balance, knowing, knowing when to stop is really tricky. Um, it, it's actually this, this relates to something I was taught at art college and there are two real danger points in a project and the first one is just starting the damn thing there's nothing more daunting than a black piece of paper or an unpainted model it, it's just taking it and starting and making those first marks and and committing um that, it, you know that, that can be quite a struggle but also then knowing when to stop. Have I done enough? What is it good enough? Have I, have I, you know, is it clear enough? Have I, have I conveyed all the things I need to convey in this project? Have I achieved the right levels of contrast and balance? And have I weathered it enough? Have I, actually knowing when that happens is really tricky. Um, I, I mean, personally, it's, it's, it's a gut instinct thing again. I mean, but also, but I, I, you know, there's a lot of to and fro and, and I'll often paint something and think, I've got to knock that back now. I've actually, it's not being afraid to change the work, but you know, this isn't this sort of process where you start painting and you just have to sort of steamroller through the project until the end. There's going to be a lot of back and forth. I mean, my, my painting is always a very organic process of going back and forth. Um, you know, I will try something, you know, I'll, I'll commit to right. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to add this rust effect here. Um, with the understanding that it may not work and I may well have to then knock it back or even, God forbid, you know, completely overpaint it and redo it. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a careful painter, I guess. I'm a, I'm a you know, I'm a notoriously slow painter. Um, I, I do a lot of thinking. I do, 
probably more thinking about my projects than I do painting. I certainly spend longer looking at them on the shelf above my desk than I do having them in my hand painting them. You know, I like to spend a little while, I'll work on a model, and then I'll set it aside and look at it, you know, move it around a bit, look at it in different light, think about the next step. Do I need to add something? Is, is, that, is that right? Is that finished? Um, before I then, you know, the next day or later that day, I'll pick it up again and maybe just do another little 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour's painting, whatever. Um, but just very slowly, very carefully, um, sort of work it through. But it, it's, it's tricky. Um, I will always have a plan. I think it's important to actually start out with a sense of where you want to finish. You, you may not finish there. But, I mean, plans always change. Mine certainly do. But with, with the Castellan as an example, um, that model was being painted to demonstrate weathering effects. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in pretty heavy with this guy. I'm going I'm to really, um, you know, weather him up much more than maybe my instinct. But I, I made that decision before I started. I was going to do a lot of weathering, um, which helped, you know, gave me a little bit more confidence. Um, but yeah, it, it sort of... Um, knowing when to stop is so important. Do you keep a notebook or how, how do you keep track of, of where you want to go with the project or no, uh, like color schemes, etc.? Yeah, I, I do keep a notebook. It's not something I've always done. Um, certain and specifically I've been doing the workshops. Um, I, I now have a notebook and I'll, I'll set aside a few pages for each project and I will start off I actually sort of, you know, I will make some initial notes about, and it may be that I'll, I'll spend several weeks or even months thinking about, my, you know, that initial thinking stage, you know, I was saying earlier about, you know, who is this character, where are they, what are they doing? All those things will go in my notebook. And then also any thoughts I have about color schemes, uh, the types of contrast, uh, the types of texture, any special effects, lots of little technical things like that. I'll just write them all down because, uh, you know, the ideas may come to me <clears throat> at any point in the day. And it's typical that you think, oh yeah, I must do that. And then you forget. So I always make a note of it. Um, what I did specifically with the Castellatch on the bottom of the page, I literally just painted a whole load of little color swatches in what I thought my color scheme would probably be. I mean, I, I'll often try and think a color scheme through, um, you know, bearing in mind the atmosphere and the story and then also using color theory. Um, the first thing I normally do is just get the pots out and stick them on my desk and see those pots of color next to each other. And if there's a real stinker in the mix, I can usually sort of fish it out straight away. Um, then, yeah, paint them actually, because obviously the paint in the pot is different to the paint on the surface, but, you know, just paint them down next to one another to see those colors as a group. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've got that there as a note and reminder, but then as the project progresses and ideas occur to me, I will always make a point of, of, of writing things down because, because my projects can sometimes take me months, and usually take me months, let's be honest. Um, you know, I might be sort of painting one bit of a model, but suddenly I'll think, you know, I'm painting the leg, but I might think, oh, I could do this on the head, um, but I'm not gonna be painting the head for a few weeks. So I always write those things down. And, you know, it doesn't have to be in any great detail. They're, they're little sort of often, they're one word sort of memory joggers. Um, but it's been it's been really helpful. But I, I do like to work in a in a, in a planned way, a thoughtful way. I, again, I, I think because I've had a design training, the idea of thinking through a a creative solution to a challenge um, 
is, is something that, that's very much sort of embedded in my miniature painting. But again, if you've got a plan, then you can vary from that plan. You've, you've got a structure you can work from. Um, I think it's important not to be too slavish. Um, you have to be flexible. You know, sometimes you're painting something, you might get a better idea halfway through a project. Um, simply because you've been working with a certain set of colours or a certain type of texture and you might suddenly get that moment of inspiration um, and it might be better you know so you, you've got to be willing to be flexible um, I think having a plan gives you that that sort of um, flexibility you know you need the structure to work from if you just start doing it and making it up as you go along which I've, I've sometimes joked is my method of working um, it isn't really you know I've, I've always got an idea in my head or a plan written down somewhere but I but I that's my starting point and some models they finish as I said gut rot spume is an example of pretty much exactly what I thought about at the start is, is almost exactly what the model looks like most other models um, the final result will vary in some way from my initial concept but it you know it's grown organically yeah I, I love that model too and that's one of the things that I think when that is one of the first models that I think about when I think about your work, because I think about it and I see the, I see so many different potential stories with him on the, you know, the bow of the ship. And, uh, you know, I'm saying like, there's, is he going to conquer on his way to or from conquering and decaying the rest of the, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, that, that one was, I mean, it, it, it was incredible. I mean, I, I, I saw that we were at some, um, not Games Day, we were at um, the Warhammer Fest and they, they literally just launched the model um, and he was in the cabinets. I think they had the studio model painted up and I just, the moment I saw him, I, I, and I saw him and I knew I wanted him on the prow of the boat and I pretty much knew the sort of colour palette I wanted to do. And I've, I've never had that before or since um, to be that clear with what I wanted. But that sense of, of, of the story around the guy, I mean, it just, that was a dream project it all came together and then, and then obviously i had to do it but uh you know to start out with such a clear idea is quite unusual Norm normally i do have to sort of work them through a little bit uh, it's it's really a, an impressive impressive piece we'll put uh links to it in the show notes so, so everybody can get a chance to look at it and and, and just gawk at it like i do um <laughs> one of the next questions i wanted to ask you was um now you you paint a lot of Games Workshop models, but um, is there a model out there that hasn't been made that you want to see made? Like I always use the example of the Stephen King's Dark Tower series. I'd love to see miniatures based on the main characters of that. Is there anything out there that you would like to see and like to paint? I think so, yeah. Um, not so much from a particular sort of um film or book or anything but I mean something I, I, I write I really like painting elves um, in amongst all my Nurgle stuff and my chaos stuff you, you'll, you'll find throughout my painting history you regularly get elves of various sorts and I've never yet seen a range of elves that really capture for me the sort of the um, the wild sort of inhuman magical feel that I, I just have a gut feeling that I, I want some real kick-ass um, almost alien feeling elves. Um, I, I think Games Workshop is starting to get there. I think there's a slight weirdness um, creeping in now that they're going for a much more high fantasy approach. I, I would love some elves that were really sort of um, 
wild magical strange you, you know we're beginning to get these figures that are sort of levitating up um with the sort of the magic they're using robes flowing around them um much more sort of elemental um some of the strange sort of mutations that they're creating with, with some of their sort of elves and their their spin-offs from the elves as well um I think it's going in a really good direction. I think it could go further. Um, the one that I think comes closest, so I've, I've got sort of in my great pile of unstarted projects is, is Alarial. I think she sort of, the moment I saw that figure, I thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's going towards what I want to see in an elf. Um, just that much more ethereal and inhuman feel to them. I, I think Tolkien had a, a huge sort of influence on elves for a very long time. Um, and I've nothing against Tolkien's elves at all. I, I, you know, I, I love Tolkien's work, but I think in, in sort of miniatures for a long time, they were just sort of tall, slim, pointy-eared humans. Right. Um, now, Alarial is the one that rides the beetle, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's a that's an incredible model. Yeah. I hope you do get to paint that. That'd be very cool to see your take on that. On that. The motto of our podcast is better, braver, happier. Um, is there any advice that you could give uh, our listeners to help them along that journey? Yeah, I, I think definitely picking up on the braver element. I, I think don't be afraid to fail. It's really important. You, you have to be willing to sometimes fail to learn. Um, we all run into trouble in our painting projects. We all have those tricky moments. Um, things go wrong. And I, I've seen a lot of painters, they, 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 they reach that moment and they kind of give up. They kind of stop. They let it defeat them. Um, and you have to learn to be able to work through that. You know, sometimes you, you need to put the model aside and, you know, not every day is a painting day. Um, and sometimes you, you take a break from it. You, you don't go there, but you don't abandon it. Um, and, and, you know, you, you know, one, one of the things I, I, I sort of, came to sort of try to share in my workshops it's that understanding that I think the, the really big difference between an experienced painter and an inexperienced painter is that the experienced painter knows they will get it wrong and they will run into trouble at various points in a project and they have the confidence and experience to, to work it through you know to come to a resolution whereas if you're a bit less experienced you, you may you, you just you can get daunted by that so you need to be brave you need to sort of Embrace the mistakes because, to be honest, you're going to learn a lot more from painting a model where things go wrong, and you you stick with it and you work it through, and you maybe talk to other people about it. Um, you know, if you're really hitting a wall, you you get some other viewpoints. But at the end of the day, you'll have learned far more from that if you get it finished. See it through to the end. Don't give up. Um, but yeah, don't you know? Um, don't be afraid of problems that they, they, they happen to everybody. Every single thing I've ever painted, there's, there's going to be a time on that project when something's not gone right. Um, and I've, I've had to struggle with it and come to a resolution. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. That it, it's, uh, it's been an honor, David. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work and I, I'm looking forward to continuing to follow in you. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Dan and I would like to thank David Soper for joining us on today's show. What a fantastic interview. We learned quite a bit uh, from talking to him. Please uh, check out his blog at Sprocket Small World. We will have a link to it in the show notes. We'll also have a link to his social media, such as Instagram. David, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. It certainly was educational, and we really, really appreciate it. You're welcome back here anytime. 
You can follow us at Listening to Paint Dry at Instagram and on Facebook, also on Twitter at Dry Painting. You can also email us if you have any comments, concerns, questions, thoughts about the show, any feedback you want to give us. At, to, you can email us at listening to paint dry at gmail.com. Additionally, you can like, subscribe, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Please, if you get an opportunity to give us a, a good review, we'd greatly appreciate it. Every little bit helps move the podcast up. And so thank you so much. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. And sometimes you just got to trust your gut to become a better, braver, happier painter. Until next time. Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan is a production of LTPDWMD. All rights reserved. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the host. The music is Death by a Thousand Questions by Springtide. Download from the free music archive on a non-commercial attribution share alike basis. All views and opinions expressed in the show are solely the views and opinions of the person who said them. All celebrity voices, if any, were impersonated and done so poorly.